Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Remote Area Medical, Share Our Strength, and Susan G. Coleman. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. You know, there are, wow, so many things about this upcoming episode that I just shudder to think about that I know that you all should probably get your, just get your your moods and your hearts right for what you're about to hear. This is going to be a tough one, but it's a necessary one. And this is something that came to my attention uh, some years ago. I've had the, the blessing, really, in the last four and a half years to become a five-time grandfather, five times. And so the oldest at the time of this recording, my oldest granddaughter is about four and a half years old and my youngest is about five months old. But it was when during COVID, my my daughter and her husband and their first baby came to stay with us in Washington from New York City because they wanted to have a place where they could spread out a little bit more and we could take turns visiting with Harper, our granddaughter, who was about two at the time, not quite two, that my daughter was expecting her second child. And so she came to to be with us in Washington with, with, as I mentioned, with her family. And she would say to us, you know, I need to go back to New York to visit my doctor for my doctor's appointment for my maternity visit. And I would say to her, you know, why are you going to New York? We have plenty of good doctors here in the D.C. area. I don't understand why you feel like you need to go all the way to New York given COVID and everything else. And she said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. She said, I have a doctor who I believe will look after me and who is, who I'm comfortable with, who knows my body and who gets it. And I was like, Jessica gets what? Dad, she says, there is a significantly higher likelihood that I will die in childbirth compared to white women in this country. 
And I do not want to be a victim of neglect or of poor health care that many, too many African-American women get during their maternal period. And I was like, wow. And so I had to look it up myself and surely found that this data was true. Then comes along my guest. I get a call from my good friend, Tom Bagnano, who heads an organization called Creating Healthier Communities. In fact, Tom is just retiring from that organization. And he says, I want you to come to an event that we're hosting where there's a movie that's going to be shown, a documentary that covers the challenges that black women have in childbirth. He said, I want you to come visit and see the woman behind the production of this film and hear her story. And I'm so glad I did because it gave me the opportunity to get to know our guest today, Shawnee Gibson, and to better understand not only her story, but what she's doing and what she's done to try to change this situation for black women in this country. So Shawnee, welcome to the show. I am so grateful that you agreed to do this. And I am just inspired by your story. I'm saddened by your story as well. But I know that you are doing all that you can to make sure that black women in this country get the kind of healthcare treatment that they need. And so let's talk about you. Let's talk about your story and let's see what we can do today to help change the circumstances for black women in this country. So, you know, Art, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to be in this conversation. It's such a critical one. And I love that you started with your personal story and that you are a man and specifically a black man having this conversation about your daughter's journey and her declaration to you that she felt safer coming here to New York because I'm from Queens, New York, um, to have her baby than anywhere else because she had a doctor that actually listened to her which not everybody is privileged to have. Um, I also say that this conversation is a universal conversation. It's a conversation that we all need to be in because anyone who's come from a womb or who has a womb, it's critical. And that's everybody on the planet, right? We all got here, whether it was C-section or vaginal birth by way of a womb in that sacred space and journey. It's a rite of passage. And there are folks who are not making it, mom or birthing person and baby, because what wasn't mentioned is that there's also a crisis around babies, black and brown babies making it. They're two times more likely to die um, in this country. And that is abysmal. Our stats in reference to the United States are worse than underdeveloped countries. And there's a very specific reason why that is. But before I go further, I wanted to acknowledge a couple of things that's just unique to me, or maybe not unique to me. Others do it. But I just want to acknowledge the wounds that have me be here talking to you right now. So my mother, Jill, um, my grandmother, who's Jill's mother, Joyce, and Joyce's mother, who's Cheney or Mary, and Mary's mother, who was Trellis, who I now have taken on her name 
because she was a midwife and an herbalist, and then also Trellis's mother, um, who was also a Mary. It's just important for me to name them and that I'm here on the unceded lands of the Lenape people here in Queens, New York, because that's part of the crisis too, that years ago, folks were robbed of their agency, their power, Black and Indigenous folk. And it's just important to name them because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for their sacrifice. So I just wanted to say that before we carry on in the conversation. Amen. Well, your story, unfortunately, is not unique. Although what happened after some of the critical moments in your story are unique. But I'd like to start with the moments that led you to where you are today, having to do with your own daughter's birth and your own daughter's, well, I'll let you tell the story. Thank you. So similarly to you and what you shared about your daughter, my daughter wanted to expand her family and she decided in 2018 that her and her partner, Omari, who's also in the film, would start planning and working on bringing a second child into the world. And at the time, her first child, my granddaughter, Anari, was two years old. So I think they declared that they were going to start planning in November. They went on a trip and when she came back, she was pregnant. So it happened immediately. That was a good trip. <laughs> so she went through her pregnancy. She had a, a midwife. She had a doula. My daughter was very fit and healthy. Um, she worked out while she was pregnant. She was a dancer before that. And so, you know, just a really healthy body. She ate really well, went to her regular prenatal visits with the midwife and wanted to make sure that she didn't experience what she had experienced in the first pregnancy, which was a C-section. She just wasn't happy with that outcome. So she wanted to have a vaginal birth after C-section, what they call a VBAC in the um, field of reproductive health. And so working towards that, she went into labor you know, I was called to come to her house. I was at her house earlier and was called to come back. She was progressing and her water broke and then the laboring part kind of ceased. So her plan to have a, a home birth was thwarted. And so we ended up going to the hospital in Brooklyn and I won't name the hospital here, but I had a connection at the hospital because I've been in this work for 15 years. So before my daughter died, which made it so devastating when she did pass, I was already in this work doing annual conferences, operating as an activist and advocate for others, um, and really speaking from my lived experience because I experienced birth trauma with all three of my children in different ways. So went into the hospital. She wasn't progressing there. They waited to see if she would have a vaginal birth at the hospital and were giving her support to do that. And then decided after a, a day and a half that they would offer up another C-section and she consented. And it was a powerful consenting. It wasn't anything that she felt bad about because she knew that they had tried and so had she. And she had a C-section and we had our beautiful Kari, who's my second grandchild, a son, and born eight pounds flat. And we were all just really elated. But she had a C-section, so she had to stay in the hospital longer. When she was discharged, you know, got the traditional discharge papers and went back home. And then a couple of days later, she started to feel symptoms, hard to breathe, pain in her chest, not being able to go up the stairs after coming down the stairs. And we were talking about it as a family. And I asked her because I'm in the, the field, you know, doing this work as an activist and advocate, if it might be a pulmonary embolism. But she said that they checked her for that and everything else. So when she went back to she called the hospital, she went back for her follow up to get 
her stitches removed. Um, she went for them to check on the baby. And each time she spoke about the symptoms she was having and they were like, oh, it's you had a C-section. This is normal. And she and I spoke. So I reached out to the head of labor and delivery at the hospital and spoke to them on the phone about the symptoms. And they, um, the person said that she needed to probably rest and just have the family take care of her. And so we planned around that. But that was the worst that we could have done because she had clots in her legs that when you are stationary, they move and they grow and expand. And so the clots moved from her legs to her lungs and then they stopped her heart. The beautiful part about it, and then I'll open up the space or leave um, for questions if you have additional questions, is that I was there. It's bittersweet, but I was there for her last laugh. I was there for the last meal she ate. I was there to hear her last words before she went into cardiac arrest at her home. What was tragic and horrible about it is when the ambulance came, which it came right away, they immediately started to question in ways that are associated with what happens to folks when they're birthing while Black, when they're driving while Black, when they're just spending time in community while Black, is they started to question whether she was on drugs. And they asked us as a family multiple times if she was using drugs and had that, was that the reason why she was going into this crisis medically? And we explained all the pieces. And I even shared that I believed it was a pulmonary embolism, yet they ignored that. And then they also kept questioning every round of folks that came, the, the um, fire department, the police. It was just really crazy that they were doing that. And even though I was in distress and I was scared for my daughter, I was filing that in my mind to go back to later because that's just how I operate as an activist. It's like, why are they doing this? But I also needed to pay attention to what was happening to my child. So she was rushed to the hospital after they stabilized her. And then she died within 15 hours after the initial crisis. And it was a pulmonary embolism. Mm. Wow. You know, my wife was with me when we saw the film that you're going to tell us about. And when we heard this story, I leaned over to her and she was equally stunned. And she said, you know, that could have been me. I said, well, what's that is true. It could have been you. And mm -hmm. we think of childbirth as something normal, but it and it should be. Right. But I said to her, you didn't just have a baby. You survived a baby. You survived having a baby. And she looked at me and she said, you know, you're right. When we look at the numbers and what can happen, maybe that's true. I guess what I want to ask you, and, and I want to thank you for, again, telling this painful story, which is painful for you, certainly, and it's painful for us listening. What do we need to do? What's happening here? What is the, what's behind this? Now you're, you told us one story, but what are the, what's the data say and, and what's behind it? Mm. There's so many layers to this whole piece. It's a historical piece that we must talk about. And it's addressed in the film about how the wounds of black and brown women have been commodified for centuries and the impact that that has had over time is still impact is it's affecting us to this day that the rape the violation the forced conception and giving birth and then giving birth and having giving birth while in the fields for enslaved african women and then being forced to go right back to work 
that over time, that level of trauma and crisis, it, it passes through generations and you don't just get over that. There's this thing called weathering that is connected to how we live and how oppression impacts our well-being overall, and specifically our um, sexual and reproductive health as Black and Brown women and birthing people in this country. And weathering makes it difficult for you to carry the load of living in this life and time when there's so much oppression and degradation day to day. Subtle points of it, what they call microaggressions, and then more overt expressions of racism and oppression that we experience. There's an impact on us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I'm a metaphysician, so I always look at that. And I'm also a psychotherapist. And I always like to look at those components when I'm doing the work, how the physical demonstrates what's going on emotionally and spiritually for folk. And we ignore that in this society because we're taught just to operate from the, the facts and the stats. It's shifting, but it's shifting very slowly. The other piece for me is when you're in a system that was not really designed for you, and when you come up out of a space where you're viewed as property, and then you're viewed as second-class citizens or not human like the dominant culture, then there's a way in which you're approached when you're dealing with physical dis-ease in the body or mental health issues. There's a way that you're looked at that's different than the dominant culture. And some of it is ingrained and unconscious. A lot of folks get caught up when we talk about racism as an element that impacts our outcomes in the, in the health field and, field and how we're treated. And they think we're talking about burning crosses or wearing hoods, white hoods over your head as clans people. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the insidious nature of racism, the unconscious biases that are projected onto people. For example, a study shows that brilliant doctors, folks who have studied medicine and are scientific geniuses even, believe that Black folk, that, that our skin is different than white people's skin, that we don't feel pain in the same way, that we're drug seeking when we say that we're in pain because we're supposed to be able to tolerate and take it. And they're operating in this day and age from that false paradigm. And it's creating danger and undue suffering for black and um, brown folk, and especially in the, the realm or the field of sexual and reproductive health. So if you're viewed as pretending or being dramatic about your pain and you're not get it, given support to address where it's coming from, then you can literally have a near-death experience or a fatal outcome. So these are some of the things. The systems in the United States are built on the um, scourge of racism and oppression. And therefore, the outcomes that we experience are tethered to that. And when we don't take ownership over that as a people, then we are perpetuating the very thing that we say that we're here to not do, which is to inflict hurt and harm on people, especially when they're in crisis medically or mentally. Now, after you were able to come to grips with the loss of your daughter, you didn't stop. You were already an advocate, but it probably ratcheted up your efforts. What were some of the mm -hmm. actions that you began to take and what was, I guess, in, in, in a way of saying it, what did you feel you were achieving in terms of outcomes? Were you getting further along? Were you having more success in helping people understand what was going on as you ratcheted up your activities? Sure. Thank you for that question. So I'll, I'll start with the first part, which is the amplification of the work. 
So as you said, and I mentioned earlier, I was already in the work. I was already partnering with the Department of Health here in New York um, City. I was already working with agencies that serve Black and Brown folk and communities around their sexual and reproductive health and well-being. I was coaching and training and doing anti-racist work because I'm an anti-racist trainer and coach and advocate in that way. And so it was just about tapping the shoulders of those folks that I was already in partnership with and demanding and commanding that they step up their work and their efforts. I also was engaging in deep listening, listening for opportunities and possibilities for spaces to open up for the story to be told about my daughter and other women and birthing people just like her. Because even though my daughter passed away, I was very, very clear that um, her story is a conduit for prevention of these types of deaths, and then also for the amplification of the the names and experiences and stories of others who died unceremoniously and without the access and privilege that I have, because I was part of multiple networks that told her story and spread it on social media and in other spaces and places. It was being talked about immediately after she died at conferences and in large spaces where there were groups of people and stakeholders that could spread the word. So I was humble in that regard because I'm like, not everybody is privileged like I was and still am, right? That I had these platforms that I had access to and these people who were in power and empowered to do something about this. And so the other piece that I will speak about that amplified it, and it's just who I am, and it's in the film, it's mentioned, and I I pray that you saw it because I want to make sure that people are clear that the calling on the support of the ancestors is super important to me in my work. It's integrated into everything. That's why we started this podcast with me acknowledging them and acknowledging those who you know, have been persecuted and had things taken away from them and the ripple effect of that. So I got a phone call two days before we were scheduled to do an event in honor of my daughter's birthday. So she died October, 2019 and her birthday was in December, 2019. And we wanted to do a community event. Once again, amplification of the story and the impact. So we were at a local organization called Weeksville Heritage Center. And it's in the film when we did that ceremony and it was a full house. But two days before I got a phone call, I picked up And that was all ancestral because art, I do not pick up the phone if I don't recognize numbers. I just don't because there's so much spam. But that day I got an urge to do it. And when I picked up, there was a woman on the other end, woman who's now the co-director of the film, Paula Iselt. And she was like, I'm calling because I heard about your daughter. I'm a filmmaker. I want to make a film about this experience of maternal mortality and its impact. Are you interested in this? I was hesitant only about it being her because she was clearly a white woman, or at least clearly to me. And then she started talking about her other partners. She talked about Dawn Porter, who's you know known in the field of filmmaking and social justice issues. And then, of course, the other filmmaker, who we now know is Tanya Lewis-Lee, um, the co-director of the film. And she said they were both involved. So I was like, okay. And she said she was going to come to the event and she would film. And if I was no longer interested after they filmed, at least I would have a piece of film that captured our experience of the ceremony and celebration and would have that in perpetuity. So I said, yes, but the rest is history. They came, they were blown away by what we put together and the community response, the art, because we're artists in our family, the men in their their presence in their conversation. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more and just all of it. And the rest is history because I said, yes, my family originally said no, but I said, I'm doing it anyway. And then they joined in shortly thereafter 
And then we made the film during COVID. And now the film is on Hulu and it's broadcasting for anyone to see um, across the globe. So let's talk about that. Tell us the name of the film and how people can access it. Because I did watch it. Yes. So the initial event was called Aftershock. That was the download that I got, that when a Black woman dies or a birthing person, the ripple effect is known for decades later, right? Because my grandbabies don't have their mom and we, we still don't know how that will impact them. And then as the filmmakers were filming us and talking with us and asking questions in community and with other stakeholders, they realized that the name Aftershock was totally apropos for that for the film. And so they asked permission to utilize the same name for the film that we use for the live event. And it's called Aftershock and it's now streaming on Hulu. Very powerful film. And you mentioned the men. The men take an, an especially central role in this, in this film because they are part of the Aftershock. They are now left with the responsibility to raise children from their infancy without a mother. Yes. And these men yes. are coming to grips with their new situation and their expanded role as a parent. And they are beautifully coming together to not only share with each other how they can get through it, but also what they can do to make sure that this doesn't happen to other families. It's just a beautiful thing. And I don't know what you might want to say about that, but I guess for you, it started with your son-in-law and him and, and others like him coming together. What did that, how did that make you feel to know that he was going to extend his role from not only being a parent, but making sure that his, his wife, what his wife died from maybe wouldn't happen to others. First and foremost, Omari Maynard is my son-in-love's name and just an amazing human being, very gifted, an educator. And he actually released his job in the world. He says he fired his job during COVID and it's all divinely orchestrated. As I said, like my guidance comes from the ancestors and so does his, that he chose to release his job. And now he's full blown immersed in this work of activism and advocacy for black and brown women and birthing people and men and partners, because not everybody who has a baby identifies as a woman and not everybody who is in partnership with someone who has a baby identifies as a man. So, you know, it's just been a critical point of growth, expansion, explosiveness in a good way of this movement because men are with intentionality being more involved and partners and then have them having black men take this stand. I don't know if you know this art, you may know already because I know you are you study a lot of these pieces around our community, but there's a CDC report that dispels the myth about black men and parenting and how they show up for their children and their families. And regardless of whether they're with their partners or not, they are the most engaged and involved parents. That study shows that. And the myth, the fallacy that's been put out there is that Black men don't show up for their families. And Omari and Bruce, who's also Bruce McIntyre, who's also in the film, 
are very present fathers and community members and partners, even in the transition of my daughter and also Amber Rose Isaac, who, whose story is also in the film. So it's been amazing watching it. But what I want to say, too, that it was very strategic before we even did the live event for Aftershock. We sat and talked about what would have the community wake up and stand at attention around these issues. And I was speaking with Omari, along with some others that are part of our extended community, about the voices of Black men, that people don't often hear them you know, and hear them in the context of social justice. Like we know about King and Malcolm and Stephen Biko and different people around the world, but brothers that are like brothers you can see at the store and you know, not used to that at all, especially talking about birthing. And so we were very strategic about making sure that that voice was a dominant voice in the conversation and the impact on them that they are left behind to raise their children they need to be present in raising their children, but it's an unusual thing to have brothers leading the way in these conversations and also to have art and ritual be a part of it, too. So it was a perfect configuration of a new way to view this issue in the world. So we're really grateful and proud that we said yes and that we followed the instructions of the ancestors to do that. What is some of the feedback you're getting from the film? <sighs> Oh my gosh, such powerful feedback. And we just talked about the brothers. So Bruce and Omari's relationship, they don't mention in the in it in the film, but they mention it when we speak in panels or in other events that are about reproductive justice and addressing this issue. But they both buried their partners on their birthdays. So Omari's birthday is October 11th. He buried Shimani. She died on the 6th and his birthday was on the 11th. And because we wanted her former pastor or forever pastor to be the officiant at the service and to eulogize her. We did it on her birthday because that was the day he was available. And then when Omari spoke to Bruce and they were getting to know one another around this loss, Bruce happened to mention that he buried Amber on his birthday. And so after that, they were tethered by the heart to one another. And they recognized that the women, these ancestors, these new ancestors brought them together through that particular connection that's extremely unique. And then also they're both artists. You know, there's a lot of levels to all of this. And so they're good, good friends and they're in this work together, manifesting transformation in the realm of reproductive health every day as Black men. And it's incredible to watch and witness. What would you say is some of the impact that this film is having on our society and on women, not only black women, mm -hmm. but on women in general who are providing us with their wombs to bring new life into the world. Yeah. I've coined a phrase. If others have used it, I'm not sure, but I know it was downloaded into me. I call it womb wizardry. All right. That And there's a, a TED talk that I did where the title was Words and Wombs Create Worlds, because they do, right? And so thinking about what will happen, and I said this a little earlier, if we transform the outcomes and how the system approaches support of Black and Brown birthing people in the United States and abroad, if we create a space for them to be listened to, for the system to honor um, their lived experiences and to put in ad additional supports because they are in danger when they give birth, sadly, 
um, when we transform it for them, then everybody else is going to be blessed. So if anybody is like, why are they just focusing on black women and birthing people in their wombs? What about us? Because there's a crisis with reproductive health in the United States for everyone. It's just that we're dying at an alarming rate. And I didn't say this earlier. We're three times more likely to die in the United States than our white counterparts. And in New York, where I am, we're eight times more likely to die. And there are states like Georgia, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, that the stats are abysmal. So anyone who's birthing during this time will benefit from us being in this conversation and pushing for the birth outcomes to shift in the system to stand at attention. What we need is to address that bias, racism, systemic and institutional are getting in the way of us delivering quality care to everyone, especially those who identify as black and brown in this country. And if we address that and name it, for what it is, I say racism, I say white supremacy culture is a part of it. And if we name that and take responsibility, then we'll be able to transform the state of affairs, not just for us here in the United States, but abroad. And the last thing that I'll say about this, or this piece of it, is that if we return to some of the indigenous practices that were ripped away and viewed as archaic and old fashioned, if we return to those, then we'll have better birth outcomes because there are other countries that have maintained those practices, midwifery and doulaship being part of the journey with birthing people, then we'll have better outcomes for all. Well, Shawnee, we could go on a long time with this conversation, but you know, we, we have unfortunately a limited, limited time here, but I want to ask you, as we close out the podcast today, what would you say are must do's for families that are blessed to be in the process of delivering birth? You must shop for a partner or provider in your birthing journey, just like you do for shoes or for a house. You wouldn't settle for shoes that hurt shoes that offend or a house that was dilapidated and broken down, unless that's your pursuit. You know, we're not trying to flip a house. We're trying to manifest an outcome that will have you be safe while pregnant and then safer after you give birth, because that's the time when we're most in danger, if you're black and brown, of having a near-death experience or fatal outcome. And paying attention on that level and being diligent. Don't let the white coat mesmerize you into not checking, questioning, and holding accountable those who are, are here to serve you as the principal genius around your care and your physical body. Something doesn't feel right for you, get a, an opinion from the provider. And if that provider doesn't listen, get a second and a third and release the provider if they don't um, honor what you're saying. If the provider said this test is not necessary, have them put that in your chart as a way to demonstrate that they're absolutely declaring that from what they've looked at as far as your labs and them knowing for sure that there's no issue that has not been identified. Make sure that they put that down in writing. It's sad you know, that you have to do that. But once again, you're worth it. And the stats demonstrate that we must do this. The other thing that I would say is do look at the reviews around the providers that you're working with. Look at the stats if they're connected to a hospital and you're going to be giving birth around the number of C-sections because some hospitals do it as a sport for financial gain just C-section. They need to move you out of the bed so they can put someone else in the bed and get more money. C-sections are big money. And if you do multiples, then the hospital is going to get paid a hefty sum as opposed to you 
delivering vaginally. And then also what I would say is if a doctor is talking about hurrying you along, whether it's at your prenatal care appointments and they're trying to rush and see as many patients as possible and not listen to your needs, or if it's you giving birth or laboring and they're trying to rush because they need to get out by a certain time, then you, it's a red flag. And you need to demand that you get your, your, your just due because your birthright is that you receive quality care, no matter how you identify. Well, Shawnee, thank you so much for, for joining this podcast and giving us this amazing information. And thank you also for all you're doing. Thank you. We need you in this country. We need you. And there's so many reasons why you could have very easily gone into a shell and have never been heard of again. So many reasons. But that's not the path you took. And as a result, I believe you're saving millions of lives just by putting out the kind of information that you are and giving us a chance to improve the quality of health care that women get during this most special time. So I just want to thank you and encourage you, if I can, to continue on with this difficult work. And I know it's complex. You mentioned how complex the, the, the challenge is but to not be overwhelmed by its complexity and to continue to provide us with as much clarity about where we can go and what we can do and what we must be in order to overcome this. So you've been listening to the Heart of Giving podcast. My guest has been Shawnee Benton Gibson. I encourage you all to check out the film Aftershock, Aftershock, to really find out more about what she's doing And please, if you want to support Shawnee and the work that they're doing, reach out to them. Shawnee, what's the way people can get in touch with you? Thank you so much. You can find us via the ARIA Foundation and ARIA is spelled A-R-I-A-H. And it stands for the Advancement of Reproductive Innovation Through Artistry and Healing. So the ARIA Foundation, check us out on the website. Please do give and support the programs and services, especially around brothers and birthing people and support for those who have experienced these devastating losses. And we're about to do a national campaign. We're launching it for postpartum awareness for BIPOC folk um, so we can stop these preventable deaths. I didn't mention that 84% of the deaths are preventable and 90% for those who identify as indigenous. Terrible. So please do check us out. Please do support us and support the national campaign when it launches in May. Thank you so much for all of this art. I'm so grateful. Well, thank you all for listening. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. If this is the first time you're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast, and we hope you'll, you'll, you'll check us out and we'll see you back here again next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.com. Dot podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only 
and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.